Colossians chapter number 3, verse number 1, uh, Paul writing under inspiration of the Holy Ghost says this, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with Him in glory. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the privilege it is to be in your house tonight. Pray that you'd take your holy, inspired word, that the Spirit of God would wield it as His sword, and that, Lord, you'd do a work in our hearts and minds. I need this message tonight. And Father, I just trust if I need it, there might be some other folks that do too. So I pray that you'd minister your word in our ears tonight, and we'll be sure to thank you for it. Lord, we love you. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, when we think about the message of the apostles and the Apostle Paul in particular, I think we often think of the heartbeat of their message as being the crucifixion. Certainly when we think about the gospel, I think most of us uh, think very readily about the cross of Calvary, the fact that Christ was made a sacrifice for our sins. But if you read carefully the witness and testimony of the apostles, and if you read carefully the the sermons and messages that they preached and the, the truth that they pinned down, you'll find that there is an emphasis most certainly on the cross. But you know, as we speak about the gospel, the gospel is not merely just the cross. The gospel is the sinless life of the Lord Jesus, His sacrificial death. It's His burial as well. The Word of God's very clear to include the burial of the Lord Jesus. You might say, well, preacher, why, why is the burial an important feature of the gospel? Because in the burial, it's pictured for us that Christ bore our sins into a far land, into a waste place. You remember in the Old Testament, when they would offer sacrifices on the Day of Atonement, they would offer two different sheep, and uh, one of them were two different goats, and one of them was to be the what we call today the scapegoat. And the scapegoat, the priest would uh, stand and uh, pronounce the sins of the nation, uh, and, and symbolically place those upon that scapegoat as well as the sacrificial goat. And the sacrificial goat would be sacrificed, but that scapegoat would be taken by a clean man out into the wilderness to a place that no man knew of, and would be left there. It was a picture of God. God putting the sins of the nation away, putting them in a place where couldn't nobody find them. And in the same way, the Lord Jesus in His burial, that that symbolizes to us and, and portrays to us that whenever He took our sins, He took them to a place that no man knows. He took them to a country that no man can find. He took them to a place where uh, they're not just behind God's back, they're not just in a bag, they're not just in the bottom of the ocean, they're not just as far as east is from west, but as the Hebrews writer says, their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. It's as if God can't even find our sins. That's how far... They've been removed from us. So the burial is an important feature of the gospel. But if there was any component of the gospel that I believe gives more, gets more attention and a greater emphasis, I don't believe it'd be the crucifixion. Rather, I believe it would be the resurrection. The thing that they preached that uh, the Athenians were puzzled by was not the crucifixion, but the resurrection. Because Paul preached that Christ not only died for our sins, but rose in power and in glory on the third day, they said that this man was a setter forth of strange gods. All throughout Paul's epistles, there is always a great emphasis laid upon the truth of the physical, miraculous, bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that even in our lives, that we have a tendency sometimes 
to apprehend the reality of the crucifixion and what it means for you and I. If I was to ask people in this room to give me testimonies about what it means to be saved, they'd say things like this, no doubt. They'd say, well, it means to be forgiven. It means to have your sins washed away. Uh, It means to have accepted what Christ did for you on Calvary. And all those things are true. And yet there is a whole other aspect to to the power and impact of the gospel that correlates to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Hey, it's true that we've been crucified with Him, but it is equally true that we've also been raised up together to walk in newness of life. And so all throughout the Pauline epistles, there's a great emphasis laid on the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about the details and mechanisms of the resurrection. In the book of Ephesians, he talks about the heavenly ministration of the resurrection. In the book of Philippians, he talks about the encouraging and fortifying and undergirding power of the resurrection in the life of the suffering believer. And in the book of Colossians, he deals with the theological impact and ramifications of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He talks about the reality that we've been crucified, but not only have we been crucified, we've also been raised with Him. In fact, he says back in verse number 12, buried with Him in baptism of chapter 2, excuse me. He says, buried with Him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with Him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised Him from the dead. In light of this great theological truth, Paul says in chapter 3, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. And here's what I want to say to you tonight, if I could sum it up into one phrase. It would be this, there's a lot of Christians that are walking in the comfort of the crucifixion, that aren't walking in the power of the resurrection. They take comfort in the fact that Christ has dealt with their sin, has carried it into a land that no man knows of, has literally wiped it from the omniscient memory of God. But very few Christians are then turning around and walking equally in the reality of the resurrection. And that's what Paul is dealing with in these four verses. I've got three simple thoughts I want to give you tonight. And I'll go ahead and give them to you before we even preach them. The first thing we see in these verses is a word of exhortation. To exhort somebody means to tell them to do something because it's what's good and what's right for them. And Paul instructs and challenges and charges and exhorts the church at Colossae that they live in resurrection power. And then he gives us a word of exclusion. You're going to find something that everything in life is a matter of commitment. And you're going to find that there are certain things if you choose them, you are by virtue of making that choice, you are excluding some other things. And spiritual truth is no different. If you're going to walk a certain way, that means rejecting some other things. And then finally, he closes these four verses with a word of expectation. Because the believer's hope is always forward-looking. In this life, we're always forward-looking. If you're hung up on the past, then you're facing the wrong direction. The believer is to always be forward-looking in their walk with Christ. So look with me at verse number one. I want you to notice first off this word of exhortation. He says, if ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. First, Paul states a reality. He says, if ye then be risen with Christ. Now, he he states this almost as though he is not making the assumption. And here's why, because he wants you to grasp the reality of what it means. You see, as we've already said, everybody in this room that claims to know Christ, if you were to ask them, have you been crucified with Christ? 
Every one of us would say, well, bless God, I have. My sins are dealt with. They're washed. They're put away. Christ bore them on Calvary. He was made sin for me that I might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And you'd be right. But the next natural consequence of that is that if we're, if we've been crucified with Christ, then we must, if we're, if we have any life at all, have then be risen, been, been made resurrected with Christ as well. Paul deals with this at detail in Romans chapter 6. I want to read a few verses to you very quickly out of that passage. Romans chapter number 6, Paul says this, verse 3, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? Even today, and water baptism is not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about the baptism of the Spirit of God, which is something that takes place instantaneously and immediately when a person is born again. ain't got nothing to do with tongues or signs. Uh, It's got to do with the uh, faith of the operation of God that Paul talks about in Colossians chapter 3. But he says if you've been baptized into Christ Jesus, you've been baptized in His death. And even to this day, when we baptize people, what do we usually say? We'll say, buried with Christ in baptism. But it don't stop there. You better be thankful it didn't stop there. Somebody say amen. <laughs> you wouldn't you want to survive your baptism if it had stopped there. Amen. Hey, listen, you want to talk about something, make a mama's heart drop into her stomach. See the preacher up there baptizing their child and say, buried with Christ in baptism. And then just hold them there. People start to get nervous, wouldn't they? <laughs> no, it didn't in there. Raised to walk in newness of life. Paul says... Therefore, verse 4, we are buried with Him by baptism into death. But like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of His death, we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man, that's who we used to be. Our old man, that's our natural self. Our old man, that's all of our sins. Our old man is crucified with Him that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. It is a theological truism, reality, and fact for every believer that if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, then not only is your old man put away by the cross of Calvary, but the new man is raised to walk in newness of life by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The the power of God that, that began to stir on that third morning, the body of Christ, that power of God that uh, enabled Him to not only lay down His life, but to take it up again, is the same energy and force that motivates and moves and drives and 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 molds and uh, choreographs the life of the new man in us. If all you know of the sanctified life is the fact that Christ has died for your sins and that God's forgiven them, then you're missing out on, I believe, what is the greater principle of the gospel. It wouldn't have been much. Listen, if Christ had not risen from the... Grave. He he could have died a sin a, a sacrifice for you and I, but he couldn't have done a thing to help us. It's the risen Savior that effectually ministers salvation in our lives and changes us and makes us a new creature in Christ Jesus. If you're saved, and Paul lets it hang out there just so that you have to say it, if you then be risen with Christ, well, anybody listening to that that claims to be saved would say, "Well, I am risen with Christ." He doesn't stop there. We see not only a reality, but we see a response. He says, seek those things which are above. 
In other words, this is a principle so vast, so powerful, that once it is truly comprehended in a believer's life, and not until it's comprehended will it be apprehended. I want to say that again so you get it. Uh, Not only, it, it won't be apprehended until it's comprehended, until you recognize what it means to be a Christian. That in being a Christian, in receiving Christ as your Savior, all that you were was placed in a grave. And all that God desires for you to be was raised to walk in newness of life. That God literally desires for you to be a different creature than what you once were. Your life shouldn't look like it used to look. you got to comprehend that. Once you do, that's about half the battle to apprehend in it. Then it's just a matter of the will, surrendering your will to His. He says, if that's true, then seek those things which are above. Paul expands on this as well in Romans chapter 6. I'll read verse 8 again, but I'll go a little further this time. He says, now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over Him. For in that He died, He died unto sin once. But in that He liveth, He liveth unto God. It says in verse 11, Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's a lot of our problem in this day. We've not reckoned ourselves dead unto sin. It may be a spiritual positional reality that we're dead unto sin, but we have not yet learned the fact that sin holds no benefit for us as believers. Now, I'm not talking about walking in sinless perfection. Uh, people say, well, you know, you can just get so good till you don't sin anymore. If you can, and I know you can't because I can read my Bible, but even if you could, I ain't found nobody that's done it yet. Somebody say amen to that. The only one that was ever sinless was, uh, I was about to say born sinless, and he was in that he was manifest, incarnated sinless, but he ain't a created creature. He is the creator, and he's always been sinless, and he'll always be sinless. But those of us born of flesh, those of us that are human beings, I've never met one that's lived a sinless life or that could even, for any extended period of time, practice a sinless behavior and conversation. I'm not talking about being sinless. I'm talking about recognizing that sin doesn't hold any benefit for you. I know that 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 it indulges the flesh. I know that it provides pleasure for a season. But we have to recognize that there's a great vast chasm and divide between who we were before Calvary and who we are after the empty tomb. We have to recognize that to go back unto that life of deadness is to go back to a life that holds nothing for us. It says we need to reckon ourselves dead indeed unto sin. How do we do that? Verse 12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. In other words, he says this, that just as Christ in dying unto sin, afterwards death hath no more dominion over him, in the same way we as believers, recognizing that the wages of sin is death, recognizing that that uh, the victory of, of uh, death or the, the power of death is sin, recognizing that these two things go hand in hand, recognizing that a sinful life is a dead life, And knowing that we've been raised to walk in newness of life, we ought to understand how incompatible sin is with the life of a believer. We ought to reckon ourselves in that way. We ought to respond 
by choosing to walk in the power of God instead of in the pleasure of sin. And then he gives us a reason for it. This closes verse 1. He says, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. In other words, the reason we're to seek heavenly things, Paul calls them things that are above. And what does he mean by that phrase, things that are above? Well, he means things that are part and parcel of the life of Christ. In other words, he's talking about the illumination and instruction that comes from the Word of God. He's talking about the guidance and direction that comes from the Spirit of God. He's talking about the strength that comes from relying upon God. He's talking about the access that we enjoy through prayer unto God. He's talking about all of the spiritual benefits that are produced by the life of Christ. He's saying that's what we ought to have our focus on. Why is that? Because anything in our life worth having and that's meaningful is sitting at the right hand of God the Father in the person of Jesus Christ. See, I tell you what this is about. Now, I didn't even write down a title to this message, but I'll just simply say this. It's about where our priorities are. It's about what we're focused on. I'm going to make some statements here in a moment about some things that we're going to have to exclude from our life, and I want to be very practical in what I say, because I recognize this isn't necessarily a matter of choosing between sin and righteousness. This is a matter of choosing between temporal and eternal. And there are a lot of believers that aren't walking in sin, but they are obsessed and consumed with temporal matters. And Paul's saying, as a believer, risen in Christ, our focus should not be on temporal things. What are temporal things? Well, anything temporary. The cars that we drive, the clothes that we wear, the numbers in our bank account. It's funny, man. I could at least understand being a little greedy back when there was gold to back every dollar. Now, man, listen, all you're working for, and if we're obsessing over the numbers in our bank account, all we're worrying, all we're obsessing over is a promise from the government. Man, ask the Indians how that works out. I mean, listen, I'm just saying it's empty. It's monopoly money. Uh, we're, we're living in a world, and so many Christians are, are, are utterly consumed. I understand why, because of the freedom that financial independence has, because of the pleasure and enjoyment we can derive from temporal things. I'm trying to get you to be a little more far-sighted than that tonight, though. We live too nearsighted. fact is, anything in our life that's going to last past the grave is seated at the right hand of God the Father in the person of Christ. And the reason we need to get our priorities out of the temporal into the eternal, get our focus off the earthly into the heavenly, is because that's what's going to last. And this life doesn't. Listen, I could take you down to the hospital and show you person after person who couldn't give a rip about how many zeros are in their bank account. Because right now they're staring down the prospect of death and they couldn't care less. It just doesn't matter. I could show you people that six months ago were obsessed with having a nicer car or a nicer set of clothes, and tonight they give everything they own to get just another month or another year or another decade. It all, listen, it all fades away. We better get our eyes on what matters, or else one day we're going we're gonna to wake up and find ourselves paupers, spiritually speaking. We see a word of exhortation in this passage. If you then be risen with Christ... Paul says, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. And then, this almost seems redundant until you notice the distinction. He says in verse 2, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. 
Verse 3, he says, For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. It's real tempting when you read that passage to say, Okay, Paul, get on to something new. It's easy. Well, Paul, you already said that. You already said I ought to be setting my affection on things above, not on things on the earth. But I think there's an emphasis that's laid here. We see a word of exhortation in verse 1. Verses 2 and 3, we find a word of exclusion. See, I think what Paul's saying in verse number 2 is he points to two incompatible priorities. At first, he says, seek those things which are above. Then his language becomes stronger and he says, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Here's what I think he's getting at. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll just let the Lord say it. Listen to what it says in Matthew chapter number 6, verse number uh, 20. Well, we'll start in verse 19. The Lord said this, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. He says, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I I think it's easy to read past that and not read it. Notice it carefully. Where your treasure is. It doesn't say where your heart is is where your treasure will be. That's how we like to think of things. Where our heart is, there will our... But no, listen, the heart don't lead the treasure. The treasure leads the heart. Not where your heart is, that's where you're going to put your treasure. But where your treasure is, that's where you're going to put your heart. In other words, what you're making investment in is going to be the place that sooner or later apprehends your affection. He says in verse 22, The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. Now you might say, well, preacher, I don't understand what's meant by that. Well, the eyes, when they're functioning properly, they don't see in doubles, they see in singles. Am I right? Most of the time, if you're seeing double, you might have got hit on the head. Somebody say amen to that. In fact, that's one of the things. If somebody has a nasty fall, hits their head, somebody will come up and they'll say, how many fingers am I holding up? And if you give an answer that ain't right with the number of fingers being held up, they assume, well, there's something wrong. Something's not operating correctly. The eye, even though we understand it's seeing two images and combining them together and the mind is a miraculous thing, the way we perceive the world is not in two images like we're looking uh, through a, a set of unfocused binoculars, but rather one image. If it's single, if it's proper, if it's functioning, it says that the whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, and it doesn't mean morally evil, it means functionally evil. In in other words, like, there's been times my car's tore up and it's been evil. Amen? (laughs) And there have been times my, my TV ain't been working, it's been evil. If thine eye be evil, meaning if it be sick, if it be not functioning properly, it says thy whole body shall be full of darkness. In other words, what the Lord's saying is this, What's right with your focus is going to determine what's right with your entire life. That's how important it is. If you don't believe that, ask a blind person how debilitating it is to be without their eyesight. You literally can't interact, at least not in the uh, normal ways, usual ways, with the world that's around you. He says, if therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? In other words, if, if, what, if what you perceive and if what functions and if what occupies you is darkness, then how great is that darkness? 
if the problem is not just that your focus is a little wrong, but that your focus is broken, he says there's no remedy for that. Your entire body's full of darkness. Look at how he summarizes it, verse 24. He says, no man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one, love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. I think what Paul's getting at is this same principle. When he says, set your affection on things above, and then he says, not on things on the earth. We're going to have to make some choices in life. Now, some of you are going to say, well, preacher, we live in this world. We've got to have money to go to the store, and we've got to have clothes on our back. Let me tell you something. I believe in people wearing clothes. Really, I believe in people wearing a lot more clothes than they wear. Somebody say amen to that. So nothing wrong with that. I got a car in the parking lot. I got a house sitting out in the country. I'm not opposed to having things, but I am opposed to them having us. And there's nothing wrong with uh, having to be occupied with temporal matters as long as we don't become obsessed with them. It's not wrong to have to deal in the temporal matters of the world as long as we're not devoted to them more than we are to eternal things. And Paul's saying, if we're going to live for heavenly things, there's going to have to be some things we're going to have to turn away from. i got news for you. There, there are some things, if you're going to live for Christ with your whole life, your whole heart, if you're going to lay up treasures in heaven, there's probably going to be some things that the world has that you ain't never going to have. Not because they're wrong, but just because they're not that important. Now, I don't think it's a sin for a man to have money. I don't think it's wrong for a man to be well-to-do. There are a few people in this world that God can trust enough to trust them with money without letting that money become their God. But for the vast majority of us, if we're going to set our affection on heavenly things, it's going to mean doing out, doing without some earthly things. And in fact, to have our focus on both things is impossible. Nothing wrong with being prospered along the way and nothing wrong with God blessing you. But the easy, well, listen to how the Lord says it. I'm going to read a little further. I wasn't going to, but I will. Verse 25, verse, Matthew chapter 26, verse 25, he says, Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body what ye shall put on. He doesn't say it's wrong to have food to eat, it's wrong to have a liquid to drink, or it's wrong to have clothes to put on. But he does say this, is not the life more than meat and the body than raiment? In other words, it's not wrong to have these things, But if what you're living for is those things, then you're missing it. If the only thing... We hear this all the time, living from paycheck to paycheck. You heard that phrase lately? Paycheck to paycheck to paycheck. And I'm convinced there's a lot of Christians living paycheck to paycheck. And I don't mean they're living paycheck in the paycheck in the sense that they ain't got no savings. They might or they might not. I mean the only thing they ever got their eyes on is that paycheck. What they can get the next week, the next month, the next year. How they can build their portfolio. How they can get more wealthy. What an empty life that is. If that's the life you're living, you're missing it. Your life and mine is worth more than that. Christ died for us. Christ paid a price more precious than all the gold in the world. And if all we're living for is gold... What a pitiful, paltry exchange that is. He says there's two incompatible priorities here. You're going to have to pick a lane, so to speak. You're going to have to set your affections and your mind on something. And the greatest advice that I could give you would be this. Make it your life's purpose to do the will of God 
to be pleasing in His sight, to serve Him to the greatest of your ability. You might say, well, preacher, I've wasted some years. Then don't waste any more. Not another day. Give it to Christ and make your life matter. We see two incompatible priorities, but then we see two incontrovertible principles. Look at verse 3. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. For the believer, these two principles are undeniable. We would all own the fact that we're dead in Christ. And if that's the truth, then we have to recognize that all that this world has to offer died on the cross with Him. It's not to be what we're living for. And there's a second thing we have to recognize, which is this. We do have life, but that life is hid with Christ in God. I want you to notice this last thought. I'll be done. I feel like the Lord's done. Look at verse number 4. He says, When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with Him in glory. Now, this is that word of expectation. Because he closes verse 3 by saying, Our life is hid with Christ in God. I'll tell you this, my friend, things are going to look a lot different on the other side of the second coming than they look right now. There's going to be a lot of things that have a lot of emphasis, attention, and focus. I always laugh. I don't ever watch them. I don't guess I've ever watched any of these award shows that come on. But if you check news articles and stuff, they'll have stuff all the time. They'll have the Emmys and the Oscars and this and that. And man, you talk about a big deal to those people involved in that. And I often think to myself, I wonder how, if they realize how little anyone between the two coasts cares about what goes on at those award shows. <laughs> Millions of dollars are spent for them to buy designer gowns and clothes and go down red carpets and have pictures taken. And if I accidentally flip across one of them channels, the only thing that ever crosses my mind is, wonder who that is. I don't have a clue, man. That's a big deal to them. There's a lot of things politically. Big deal. And I understand they are big things in this world. But oh my, how all of that is going to just shrink and wither in light of the second coming. You see, that car you drive, the clothes you wear, the numbers in your bank account, the house that you have, the status, if there is such a thing for us East Tennessee hillbillies, the status you enjoy, all of that means a lot right now in this world. Because that that life, quote-unquote, is manifest. But there's another life that's hid, and it's the spiritual reality. That life, the, the resurrection life, the manifestation of the, of the faithfulness and commitment and service of God's people, it's hidden right now. They could care less. Uh, you could turn on the news and, and you could flip through a thousand articles before you'd find... You could probably flip through a million articles before you'd find a news article about a Christian somewhere living for the Lord. It's not something on the radar. That's normal. The world has no interest in the things of God. Never has. Whenever the Creator came into this world, came unto His own, His own received Him not. He created the world, the world was made by Him, and the world knew Him not. And that's still the case today. But there's coming a day when things are going to be flipped around. Paul says there's a future revelation that's going to happen. He says, when Christ, not if Christ, when Christ, who is our life, and he doesn't say may appear, he says shall appear. There's coming a day when Christ is returning. Now, I don't believe that what Paul has in view here is actually the rapture. 
because at the rapture, the rapture is a secret event. It's something the world won't be privy to. It's for the church. We'll be caught away in a moment in a twinkling of an eye. I believe that Paul's looking past that seven-year tribulation period to when Christ returns in power and in glory, for that's what we call the appearing of the Lord Jesus. And he says, there's coming a day as we cast our gaze forward. I told you that in the beginning of the message. Our gaze ought to always be forward as God's people. You Listen, if you live this life the way it ought to be lived, you're not going to be a popular person. You're probably not going to be a wealthy person. You're probably not going to be an influential person as it relates to this world's opinion. You're probably not going to live in comfort and leisure. But if you live this life the way God intends for you to live it, there's coming a day that Christ will return and everything's going to change. Because there's a future revelation But he notes that there's a future realization too. And what is it? Then shall ye also appear with him in glory. I think occasionally, probably not as much as I ought to, but I think about what it's going to be like on that day. You know, after seven years of the world boiling over like a, like a pot forgotten about on a stove, the Lord is going to split the eastern sky, come back riding upon a white horse. It's what my Bible says. Revelation chapter 19, a white horse. Say, preacher, you got a problem? I got no problem with that at all. After I read Genesis 1-1 and found out that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, I ain't never had a problem with anything else in that book. He's going to come back in power and in glory with his vesture dipped in blood, a name written on his thigh, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, with a sharp two-edged sword proceeding out of his mouth to consume the armies of the Antichrist. The Bible says that there will be a heavenly host with him. On that day, the meek of this world won't look so meek. On that day, those that are poor in spirit won't look so poor. On that day, those that have toiled in service and obscurity and the world taking no thought for their life because they invested it in heavenly matters instead of earthly matters won't look foolish. They won't look powerless. They won't look impoverished. On that day, everything's going to look different. By the same token, there's probably going to be a lot of Christians that as they stand before the judgment seat of Christ are going to be ashamed at how cheaply they sold their resurrection life to this world. That were given new life in Christ and spent the rest of it punching a time clock, trying to buy toys, trying to buy clothes, trying to buy a bigger house to fill with more junk that we don't need. On that day, everything's going to look different. And I ask you this question in closing. What will that day look like for you? Are you living your life in a way that matters? I tell you this, if you're just living your life just to make money and go along to get along without ever giving a thought to how you can serve Christ and do His will, then you're not living a life that matters. But if you'll set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth, then one of these days when Christ appears in glory, we'll appear also with Him in glory. On that day we'll not be ashamed and will not regret that we gave this life to Jesus Christ.